The New Jerusalem, the holy city, is the goal towards which all of humanity is moving. It is curious that God's revelation tells us that the fullness of humanity and of history is realized in a city. We need to look at our cities with a contemplative gaze, a gaze of faith, which sees God dwelling in their homes and their streets and squares. Hello, everyone. Welcome to New Polities Podcast. We are so excited that you are joining us for a new series, Good Cities. This is going to be an excellent compliment to our previous series, Good Money and Good Soil. Give those a listen if you can, but for right now, we want to justify our civic existence, and we're doing it with Jacob Pyman and Nathan Bird. But before I introduce these fine fellows, I want to introduce you to the idea of subscribing to our magazine. You don't want to really be here, okay? You don't want to be looking at a computer screen. You want to be out in God's nature on top of an asphalt shingle roof, feeling the warmth of the summer sun seep through your clothes while you read an excellent article by who knows, Milbank, Kavanaugh, maybe even me, hopefully Andrew Willard-Jones, some of the greatest thinkers out there. Got to tell you guys, the magazine is where it all begins and ends. It's where the best thought goes into it, and it's where we're, we're actually careful. I mean, the podcasts are not careful. I mean, you just start riffing, and then who knows where you'll end up. But the magazine, <laughs> <laughs> the magazine is otherwise. So, subscribe now. Now, gentlemen, oh. welcome to Steubenville, Ohio. <laughs> so glad to have you. Um, before we go any further in justifying this topic, let's introduce you. Who are you, and what gives you the right to speak about the city? Nathan. My name is Nathan Bird. I'm a civil engineer. I reside in the scenic city of the South, Chattanooga, Tennessee. And uh, I've been spending much of my career helping build up the urban fabric of Chattanooga as a, as a consulting engineer and also as kind of a pseudo journalist with uh, Chattanooga Civics, which we discussed in a, in a previous episode. So thank you for having me and thanks for hosting me in Steubenville. It's lovely here. Nathan, happy to have you. Jacob Hyman, who are you? Hello. It's not much of a welcome to Steubenville for me. I've been living here for two years. A little what? Over. <laughs> Did you not know? Oh my gosh. Oh man. <laughs> been living here for a little over two years. I don't know, maybe first three and a half months. We're right next to Mark, but if he forgets. So um, originally from Florida, but moved here for the Catholic community. I too work as a consulting civil engineer. In fact, both Nathan and I are in the same wheelhouse within civil engineering. We're both civil site engineers to the engineer nerds. You get it. Everyone who doesn't, we do uh, stormwater management. We do parking lot design, all that kind of stuff for land development projects. Um, But I, too, have had my own civic involvement here within Steubenville. I've been involved with the Harmonium Project since I got here. But over the past few months, have started up a local chapter of the Strong Towns National Nonprofit here in Steubenville. And um, from that, have some perspectives to contribute to the New Polity Podcast. Now, in the opening quote, I think it was from the Vatican II documents, right? No, that was from... Oh, mm-hmm. it's from Pope Francis. Evangelium Gaudium. Yeah. Evangelium Gaudium. Uh, the Pope Francis. asks us to consider our cities with a contemplative gaze. Seems to me that we have considered the cities uh, as a Catholic culture here in America and have often come to the conclusion that they are largely wicked places of sin and temptation. And Flee if, to the fields. Well, if there's any sort of common sigh that I hear among the, the you know homeschooling Catholic mom and dad contingent of America... Sounds like a professional. Uh, <laughs> that sounds like a professional organization. That's a professional wrestling ring. Okay. Uh. Yeah. Um, if there's any kind of common parlance, it's the kind of hopeful idea of getting out to the land, avoiding the city and its temptations, its busyness, its hairiness, unplugging from technology, and carving out of God's creation some place where they can teach our kids to live a moral life. Mm. And then you two guys come in here into our town and say, no, no, no. Not so fast. The city is something quite good. And Revelation hints at it, so it's not it's not our words. Don't shoot the messengers. So. That's true. John is the messenger. John is the messenger. And, I mean, I want to start with kind of a very practical example. And we're recording here in Steubenville. We're just a couple blocks from 4th Street where you have your first Friday festivals. Uh, we're not far from St. Peter's Church and from from your own home. Um, this is a place that New Polity 
has really made its own, really engaged with the city, both politically and in the built environment, you know, renewing buildings and things of that nature to make the city a beautiful place where all of the goods of life can be accessed. Um, and then, you know, just recently you had Eric Brende on the podcast talking about if you want to really disconnect from technology, <clears throat> the city's not actually, you know, kind of counterintuitively not a bad place to do that. Mm. Uh, you can disconnect yourself from the car much more easily in a, in a walkable neighborhood. You can disconnect yourself from other pieces of technology, the phone, the computer, no matter where you are, really. Um, so, so once you start to think about it, once you come to a city where you see people living common lives of virtue, you start to understand there's a lot of goods to be had in a city that can really be had nowhere else. Uh, cities are places of art, culture, craft, and uh, that's not to say these things cannot be had on a homestead, but they're brought up to their perfection in a city. I think that the reason this probably seems counterintuitive to people is because um, our cities don't seem to have a clear purpose <clears throat> or mm -hmm. definition. Right. We often find ourselves in them, um, but it's not like the it's not like we were there at the establishment. It wasn't like we. Yeah, a part of the commune that eventually became a city. So even that it wasn't much of a commune, particularly in America, a lot of our cities, I mean, are relatively new historically over the past, you know, 300 years. And they're primarily um, driven from the acquiring of natural resources and the processing of those natural resources. They're good trade hubs, military hubs. Um, the sense of people coming together for the sake of a common life, it tends to be an after fact uh, or after the fact. And there is this uh, competing tension and energy within the cities. And I think we've seen within our time the aftermath, aftermath of the automo automotives, the automobile and its effects on our cities um, and everything that surrounded that type of new development that promoted it have changed our cities uh, for the worse, but also I think revealed, revealed the dysfunction that was already present. But what seems apparent, though, in that in that quote from the Pope is that the city you've described it as somewhere where certain goods are available. Mm -hmm. But it seems like he goes even further because he's not describing it as sort of an option within human life, as if it's like, okay, look, you want some goods of art and culture, you enjoy the opera house, well, really, you're going to have to have a city. But there's this other possible option where you can choose the not city. <laughs> because he frames the whole discussion as... Um, uh, within the eschatological uh, sort of destination of man, hmm. ultimately we end up in a heavenly city, in the new Jerusalem. Mm -hmm. When we describe paradise, we don't describe a repetition of the Garden of Eden, but in some ways we describe what I imagine the Garden of Eden, had we not sinned and been kicked out, would have eventually been built up into. We describe the heavenly city, the place where the worship of God is... Is perfected. Adam and Eve wouldn't have just been gardeners their whole life. No, absolutely not. Yeah. I mean, because a gardener can't just be a gardener. If you've ever gardened, you know this. You have to be. <laughs> I mean, you have to start building things, and then you start having kids. And we'll talk more about this in the podcast, of course. But yeah, I mean, throughout this series, I think we're going to be making maybe a bold claim today. We really have to reconceive cities as an entity. Entirely, we'll be talking about the relationship between the city and the surrounding land. Uh, how, when we say cities, we think lots of buildings close together, right. lots of people. That's only part of the picture in the traditional understanding of a city. That is only half of it. Mm -hmm. um, the we'll talk about it at length throughout the series. But Aquinas basically assumes that the agricultural land surrounding what we would call a city is also part of the city. Mm. It's it's a single political entity, it's a polity. Right. And uh, you can't separate the two. We have, to, we have to end this kind of tension and dichotomy between fleeing to the fields or embedding yourself in the city. It's all part of the same mission, mm. to live together 
in community in a life of virtue. So I want to follow the biblical narrative a little bit and talk mm. about the origin of cities. And then I want to explore what St. Thomas Aquinas has to say about cities as well. So right. we're going to start. We've already covered Adam and Eve in the garden and their eventual being kicked out and uh, moving on to their son, Cain, mm. kills his brother Ouch. and he runs off into the wilderness, but he doesn't stay in the wilderness for very long. He founds the city of Enoch. Um, and it's interesting because it's already described as a city where arts and culture are thriving. It's it's really interesting to see this dichotomy because it's presented as a place of man running from God, trying to sever his connection from his God and his family. Yeah. But at the same time, even all of that being taken into account, you see that Enoch is where uh, they make instruments of brass and harps and, and things of that nature, uh, which which are then incorporated into the worship of the tribe of Israel. I mean, right. sing on the harp and the lyre. Yeah. Um, mm. So the first city is presented as this place of hiding, mm. of severing our relationships. And from there, it doesn't really get much better. The next city that's really described in, in any great detail is Babel. Mm -hmm. where men attempt to build a name for themselves, to give themselves glory. And that doesn't go very well. They're distributed in their various languages and uh, the, the city remains uncompleted. And then the next city that's described is the city of Ramses, city of slavery that the Israelites are forced to, to help complete. But throughout all of this, we're, we're building up to the redemption of the city. Because when God brings the people of Israel out of Egypt and gives them the law, he commands the establishment of the Levitical cities. Now, the assumption is that most people, most of the Israelites will be working the land. They'll be shepherds and farmers. But the law is very clear about the need for the Levitical cities as places of medicine. It's where the lepers go to be made clean uh, and to be checked over by the priests. It's, place, it's a place of worship. It's where the priests reside. And it's also a place of refuge in kind of distinction from the city of Enoch where man goes to hide from God. Now we're seeing God making a place for man to reside in peace. Mm -hmm. You know, if somebody was was wanted for manslaughter, they could go from, to one of these Levitical cities and seek refuge so they would not be mm -hmm. subject to vigilantism. Mm -hmm. And then from there, we move to the city of Jerusalem, where rather than like Babel, man makes a name for himself. The Israelites build the temple where they dwell with God. And so rather than being a self-aggrandizing glory, it's a building up of a city for the glory of God. Right. And then ultimately, we reach what Pope Francis referred to in the opening quote, the heavenly Jerusalem. All of this is leading up to the revelation that heaven is a city. And we have to understand, we have to grapple with that. Why is that? If we've, if we've seen throughout history how cities are, kind of these grimy places where there's maybe we feel like there's too many people, there's too much vice. Why then is Jerusalem, the heavenly Jerusalem, how we're revealed the city? Yeah. Wow. One way to look at that salvation narrative is, is one in which cities in, are built in, in sin and out of the, the sinful motivation to hide from God. Mm -hmm. It's very hard to hide from God. You know, he's, he, if nothing else, he knows where you are. I mean, this <laughs> is part of the, uh, the uh, what's that, third chapter of Genesis. You know, you can find Adam hiding yeah. in the leaves of the garden. And what a city does, the way that it can kind of create the illusion of being hidden from God is it can create the appearance that everything that's needed for life comes from man. Now it's obvious and obviously an illusion. I mean, if if you've ever seen a, a bumper sticker driving 
uh, down the road that says something to the effect of like, uh, food comes from farms or, you know what I mean? There's like this, um, reminder as it were that Hmm. no food doesn't just show up on the grocery store shelf. Um, no, it's not the case that there's not earth underneath all the asphalt. Like this is in fact, um, a work of man who uses the gifts of God creatively. Mm -hmm. So God properly should be resplendent in any of man's works. Mm -hmm. Man is the image of God, uses what God gives him to glorify God. Mm -hmm. But there is a way that the darkness of sin can allow us to live in such a way that I think we've all, even faithful Catholics have experienced in the city where the appearance that man takes care of himself through the use of technologies um, and hit the works of his hands becomes so overwhelming, especially within a modern city, that you can kind of go through your day without giving a thought to God. Mm. Right? Nothing appears to have come out of any great, you know, natural process. It's just it's all laid out for you. The buses are on schedule. The grocery stores are full, and man takes care of man. It seems, and this um, this seems to be the wickedness of the city, mm-hmm. uh, or or what's possible. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, it's like God is has a, a judo move plan. He's he's letting us judo. Yeah, yeah, judo. Oh. Not <laughs> he's letting us uh, build up these cities. Not without reference to the fact that he is going to become man, right? So we're building up a world of man, a world of man, apart from God, apart from God. And and, and in some ways you can imagine this almost as like a trick on God God's part. He's like, okay, you're going to build up this great earthly things and it's all going to speak of man and man's glory. And precisely up to the point that there's even you know worship of kings and, and mm-hmm. the worship of false gods mm-hmm. within within the temples. But God's plan is marvelous because he plans to enter into our city so that all of that, you know, all of that man-made shell that was built to keep God out, the moment God becomes man, can no longer have that. Um, It becomes transparent. It becomes stained glass overnight with the incarnation of Christ because now... You know, as the fathers say, because God became man, man can become God. Mm-hmm. And so this is just part of God's great condescension towards us. I mean, mm-hmm. He's willing to to allow us the freedom to sin, but he doesn't leave us alone after we do sin. When we build temples, you know, to false gods to keep you know the God of Abraham at bay, he enters into that and says, Very well, if you're going to have temples, then you can build me a temple and I will be your God. Right, even the very term God we've spoken of is something that we first did in in the falseness of our beliefs and in the attempt to hide from this unspeakable God who you know almost doesn't have a name in certain respect. And he says to the Israelite people, "Okay, you're going to worship gods. I will be your God. You want temples? I will be in your temple. I will <laughs> dwell with you." And so, in a similar sense, it's like you will build cities in sin. You'll build them to hide from me but I will not leave you alone, hmm. right? It's precisely through the city that, you know, I am going to come to you. Mm-hmm. And so the city is, it's, it's on the one hand, you can see man's natural longings as he builds a city. He's a world builder. Man is creatively trying to order the earth so that it glorifies God. That's his vocation. And he never loses that vocation, even though he sins. Uh, and then on the other hand, you can see that's sort of the movement upwards, right, mm-hmm. to God. But on the other hand, you can see God in his condescension moving downwards and saying, look, you built that for dubious ends, but I will take it to bring you back to myself. So um, so the city is at once sort of, yeah, you, we can say, I think confidently, oh, yeah, it is pretty wicked in the Old Testament. And what a great God we have that right. he used mm-hmm. our wicked constructions for right. his glory. Yeah, yeah, he glor- glorifies all things and, and makes us co-creators with him. Mm -hmm. So I want to talk about what St. Thomas Aquinas has to say about cities with all of this background um, and see, you know, you'll see that vision that Christ has entered into our cities and redeemed them. It's implicit in what, what St. Thomas is writing. 
in his commentary on Aristotle's politics, he says, that community will be the perfect community, which is ordained to the end that man may have the fullness of life. And this is the city. For it is in the city that man finds the satisfaction of whatever needs human life may have in the circumstances in which it is lived. Once it exists, it will provide men with the means not only to live, but also to live well, insomuch as by the laws of the city, life is made to be virtuous life. Wow. So he assumes the perfection of, of human community is found in the city. And I mean, it's, it's clear really just from the fact of being community. The assumption is that we are made for life in community, building up one another in virtue. And that requires, because we are physical beings, yeah. that requires a physical space for mm-hmm. us to be a community. We cannot just be a community. We've tried it with the cell phone and tried to be a, a disembodied community, but it never really satisfies. It never really works. And it's it's inherent even in our worship. I mean, in the mass, mm-hmm. we are called to come together to one place at one altar to worship God. Mm-hmm. And I think you realize this when, even if you have the effort or the desire, we're going we're gonna to go to the fields and you get a bunch of families who do this. And we, I will be speaking about this later in the City and the Land podcast. When you get there, and you start doing your thing together as families, tending the land, you inherently tend towards an urban form because you simply have more children. You start needing more resources to care for them, laying out connections to pathways to people's homesteads. Mm -hmm. You're you're organically going to be tending in this direction. The, The farm itself... And the abundance of it isn't just in its produce when rightfully tended. Um, it's in it's in the culture that it brings forth, mm-hmm. and that takes an urban form. Yeah, yeah. in fact, I would say it, it seems obvious that that's where the fun of it all is. Mm. Right, like the people, going out to the land, if you just think of it as like a frozen fixed form of crop raising, then you kind of you kind of fall prey to the very ennui of the of um, modern agriculture as it exists, which is basically like, well, if you <clears throat> really like like raising crops, then I guess farming's for you as if right. it were some kind of like, you know, job that you picked because you scored well on, on a character assessment. I, I don't have the quote before me, um, but in Pope St. John the 23rd yeah. encyclical Matret Magistrar, it's a whole section on like agricultural life because Pope John grew up on a farm himself. And there's one line in one of the paragraphs there, which just, I mean, some it's just a single line, but saying how, it is the farm which is the bedrock of civilization. He says it in a far grander way than that. Yeah, yeah. But um, in, in ex- um, exhorting the, the farmers, like, it is on you of which the city and the civilization resides. Yeah. yeah. No, it's, it's very clear that the farm is, is fundamental to human civilization and to human flourishing. It's, it is as the family is the kind of building block of society, the farm is the building block of our built environment. But these things are not made to be static. Right, it's very you, dynamic. You cannot contain it. If you try and contain it, you end up killing it. Mm-hmm. And so you will have abundance spilling over that needs to be directed to greater ends. Mm. And sometimes that greater end will be a beautiful church to pray in or a new shop for a craftsman to perfect his craft so that we can orient all things towards Christ rather than just continuing to scrape out sustenance from, from the farm, which is good, but we are offered more. Yeah. And that abundance can then spill over and will eventually become what we understand to be a city. Nathan, one of the things that helps me get through life is to remember that, that we live forever after we (laughs) die. Uh, And the reason it helps me is it's because anytime, anytime you want to get ideological about anything you have to ask could i do this forever the thing (laughs) is like what i love about the city is that it is an infinite like abyss of Mm -hmm. creativity Mm -hmm. there is no form at which you are done rather precisely because the mandate is an ever greater and ever deeper perfection of human life Mm. then the civic project already pairs with the heavenly project if you want to call it that right right where you're you're standing before an infinity and saying there is no amount of time that i can conceive of that i cannot further perfect human life in in 
what Aquinas calls, I think, all of its circumstances, which is like, I mean, sometimes I think about this, like, you know, people, kids get like this, right? Like, what am I going to do in heaven? I'm going to get bored. And it's like, well, you could get into, for instance, like craft brass doorknobs in heaven and spend like what would be equivalent of 30,000 years until the brass. <laughs> it is the most incredible doorknob you have seen. And that is one part of one door of one house yes. in one city called the New Jerusalem. Now, obviously, look, I, I, have, a very, I have a very fleshy view of heaven. Right? <laughs> I mean, it's I'm, a. I'm just staring at, at God. I understand. I mean, it, this. There's a mystery if it's a new heaven and a new earth. And is that a renewed earth? Is that a new. Look, it's got roads. Gold roads. Yeah, gold roads. I, I don't know how the cars will do on that, though. It has yeah. walls. Convertibles will do okay. <laughs> What I wanted to say is the other the other thing that so you, the, the civic end gives things like farming things that sometimes we associate as like alternatives to civic life as mm -hmm. if somehow we could avoid the city. It gives even those things their their infinite um, extension through time, right? So so even when you farm, precisely because the farm is the beginning of a city, it is civic. Uh, as we're going to discuss more in another podcast, uh, it it transcends transcends itself, and anyone who's lived at all knows that things only really get fun when they transcend themselves into something greater. Mm -hmm. Right? It's like the kind of wedding day of all things. Everything kind of you know moves beyond its insular existence towards something greater, and and that's not the death of the thing. That's not like that's not like oh well because the farm transcends itself into the city somehow the city is better than the farm it's like no the perfection no, they're, they're of the farm. one thing they're one yeah, mission yeah, yeah. all oriented in the same direction totally and one of the ways i think aquinas helps us to see this is when he just you'll you'll note from his definition there he didn't mention buildings mm. right he didn't mention roads mm. He didn't really mention any sort of concrete topography or like a, a, a size of population that makes it a city or even like a, a legal, you know, mm -hmm. juridical claim. 15,000 people. He, he does talk a little bit about the, the physical needs of the city, but he, he, he never talks about population. Yeah, that's that's very important. But what, so, he, what he describes here is, is really the spiritual reality of community yeah. where he says that the city is sufficient for the needs of human life in all its circumstances, mm -hmm. which there's no point then at which we are not involved in the city insofar as we are pursuing sufficiency for human life and really its perfection and virtue in all of its diverse circumstances, right? So the city simply is in some senses that upswell of the heart that says, um, I want the utmost for humanity. Everything that's possible within man, I want to see realized in one community. Mm -hmm. Which is why in some ways you could say, look, even the city transcends itself uh, to the church, mm -hmm. right? But that's just, the church is just where, the church is a city. The church is the achieved, yeah. you know, right. uh, the achieved city, the, uh, the city of the saved, I guess. Anyways, but it seems to me that the, that Aquinas really puts his flag on, a, on the spiritual reality of the mm -hmm. city as something that belongs to man by his birthright. And, and that we kind of, I think it's fair to say, cannot not be civic animals like right no it is important and i think maybe we should have mentioned this earlier when we say city in this new renewed vision there is no size there's no minimum or maximum to say this is a city and you must have so many people and you must meet these metrics. Mm -hmm. We try and do that in Man. modern life and, and count everything and, and stratify it and say, mm -hmm. okay, this is a town, this is a, a village and here's a city as you know, needs at least 50,000 people to really be a city. There's none of that implicit here. Yeah. The assumption is that it is a unified polity moving towards human perfection and, and, and it can exist at a we, multitude of sizes. And we recognize that, that the polity yeah. is a helpful term because it gets to the Greek of the polis in mm -hmm. terms of it, you do have your, you know, your central city, your metropolis, your mother city. Um, and then you have in its hinterlands, you could call them villages, hamlets, townships. But there, there is this, um, from that rural to urban perspective, you do have this diversity of dwelling places yeah. um, that make up the city and they're not divided against one another they're unified 
mm-hmm. to a common goal, just pursuing yeah. it in, in different ways. Yeah, I mean, it's very, a very holistic vision. because it's simply, I think this can be comforting to people who hear us defending cities and their minds immediately jump to the giant megalopolises of you know new york and hong kong and chicago and these places that those cities still have temples at their centers it's just that their temples are a hundred stories tall covered in glass and it's where the stockbrokers work Mm -hmm. yeah so so we're not necessarily defending a particular modern form of a city though though there are still many goods to be found there i would challenge people to to look for them but um that's not at the core of what we're trying to do here. We're defending the city at all sizes. We will yeah. be happily talking about the horrors of the modern city. Yes. Um, yeah. That is, we're not we're not um, trying to be all theory here. We do yeah. want to be able to give um, a historical lesson, particularly on North American cities. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if you if you want, though, before we talk about some of that, if you want to read more of Aquinas. I, I'm going to read some more from Aquinas because it really lays out how he thinks about a good city, what a good city should have. And he's writing this, this is coming from De Regno, which is a letter he's writing to a king to explain the nature of kingship. And most of it, most of this document's related to authority and how to justly wield authority. But the second part of the document is actually dedicated towards city building. Mm. Aquinas is asserting that a king should be acting as a, a master planner of a city. And, and an urban designer. Um, so I'll read this at length and I'll come kind of summarize a few other points. And this is De Regno, paragraph 100. Of course, the founder of a city and kingdom cannot produce new men, places in which to dwell, and the other necessities of life. He has to make use of those which already exist in nature. Therefore, the founder of a city and a kingdom must first choose a suitable place which will preserve the inhabitants by its healthfulness, provide the necessities of life by its fruitfulness, please them with its beauty, render them safe from their enemies by its natural protection. Next, the founder of a city must mark out the chosen place according to the exigencies of things necessary for the perfection of the city and kingdom. For example, when a kingdom is to be founded, he will have to determine which place is suitable for establishing cities and which is best for villages and hamlets, where to locate the places of learning, the military training camps, the markets, and so on, with other things which the perfection of the kingdom requires. And if it is the question of founding a city, he will have to determine what site is to be assigned to the churches, the law courts, and the various trades. Furthermore, he will have to gather together men who must be apportioned suitable locations according to their respective occupations. Finally, he must provide for each one what is necessary for his particular condition and state in life. Otherwise, the kingdom or city could never endure. So there's a a certain amount of order that arises from the duly appointed authority of the king. And then he goes on to list some qualities of a good city. Um, And he he explains each of these in more detail than I will here. But in short, he says a good city will have a temperate climate, wholesome air, arable land, abundant food, clean water, a certain amount of beauty. But he's careful to say that with too much beauty, man will come in, become indolent and, and cease to seek after their own perfection. Don't move to Colorado. (laughs) Denver, yes. (laughs) He also says that cities should make moderate use of merchants and that most of the population should dwell outside the walls. So we see there in that idea that a city should have arable land, abundant food, and that most people should dwell outside the walls that, again, breaking down this assumption that a city is simply the dense urban fabric and not the surrounding hinterland. It's all in Aquinas's understanding, part of one project, one totally. civic project. Yeah, and we'll speak more about it, but the the, um, the very separation of all food production to just giant farms and then the kind of understanding of the city as somewhere that's like just Basically, consuming. Just con- a consumptive center that just eats but doesn't produce well, the anything. Idea you, the idea that you just come is, to the city for refuge. I mean, it's where you, it's where your rights are upheld. It's for many people. Not yeah. that there's a common life to be lived, but that you have, there's you have a, wages, you have resources, but it, it's coming from you didn't have those before. Yeah, but I think that idea of, of the kind of 
what Aquinas describes is at such odds with the idea of the, the city as center of consumption because he's assuming production, right? He's assuming places for the trades. He's assuming arable land um, surrounding. But also we have to remember that for the modern industrial city, it's built largely on the premise that we have removed people from subsistence on the land into yep. the cities for a new kind of unity that's on the basis of having tons of people work Mm-hmm. Within factories, this is the the factory town, as they say. Um, one of the ways that you see this is, you, I mean, simultaneous to this is you see the the removal of, um, well, it's a gradual move, but the removal of smaller agricultural enterprises that could be closer to the city mm-hmm. or indeed within the city, um, and the the loss of those kind of necessitated the creation of the of the country as like the only place where food is made. It's like this this total divorce as opposed to diversification. You have you have separation. I was reading this. Um, yeah, it's crazy the amount of productivity that uh, in in the city of Paris um, within the even the 17th century you got from from market gardeners. What book is this? Gardening within the city. Oh, sorry, this is the invention of capitalism by Michael Perelman. Um, Paris Gardener produced, this is a, okay, this is 1870, produced more than 44 tons of vegetables per acre, uh, not to mention 250 cubic yards of topsoil, right? And this is sort of within a space that we would consider to be, you know, properly speaking, all covered in concrete and, and asphalt. Right. And obviously, <laughs> this is before some of that, but so the, the, the vision that we have of cities is very often the vision of the alienation of people from the land. And so we create the se- the very separation that was would have been very foreign to Aquinas to mm-hmm. think, okay, I'm going to build a city, therefore I have to separate people out from the land. No, 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 precisely the opposite. There is a dignity. I have to look for good land. And, you know, right. there, is, there is a recognition of that more rural hinterlands and the urban core as having a relationship to one another, but it's a really, it's a relationship of dignity. You have the walls of the city, which provide this respect in terms of a preventing an um, obsession of growth out into the villages. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there, there still is a distinction, but it's not one of, um, it's one of dignity. I think probably the most amazing part of what you just read, it might, it might not seem particularly amazing, but he says, that you can't just get new men, but that what a city will always be is reliant on what exists, the inhabitants and the place that's already there. Mm-hmm. And this is so fundamental to the Catholic understanding of the world that because we really are capable of virtue um, by grace, we're capable of virtue, then any kind of planning um, for a city should first look for where peace already exists. It's like you need to look around for someone to serve. This is the very opposite of some kind of tyrannical, uh, well, you need to aggrandize yourself, so go oppress people. He says, look, you're going to need to find inhabitants, and you're going to need to serve them in your civic project. Right. And that's where the church always begins, is in this understanding that, well, power is for the weak, and so to build a city is to look for inhabitants who are already involved in the civic project at some stage by virtue of having families, by virtue of loving each other, by virtue of seeking community. So then the, the sort of, you know, explicit city building work becomes a way of serving the civic, the city building work that people are already about. Right. Um, and that's very different from how we understand cities now, which is that, there isn't a civic project prior to some kind of centrally planned decision. And then the relationship to the land and to nature and the inhabitants mm-hmm. that preceded it is one of basically opposition. So you either need to kick out, you need to flatten, you need to grid mm-hmm. out, and you need to extract resources into the city for consumption. Mm-hmm. And that this is the basic relationship that man has to, to nature. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, This is also in part because within the West, a lot of our city building um we'll have a discussion on planning but um a lot of our our cities come uh, come from at least derive their authority from above within america 
it, it's fascinating, right? Because you had to have people settling first in the area before it got incorporated as a state. Um, but once the state was incorporated, all of the cities and towns that then reside within that state derived their authority to assemble from the state. This is how it is in Steubenville. This is how it is in Chattanooga. So in terms of, you know, the, the cities are not able to exist for themselves. They're always um, involuntarily, not that trade is a bad thing or that, that cosmopolitan nature of cross-pollination between cities is a bad thing, but you are, um, it's not that you are opting in to choose, choose into it for the good of the city, but by residing within this territorial boundary, you have to be disposed. You have to have a state road going through your town. You have to have the highway, mm-hmm. right? Well, and it goes against what Aquinas describes as the end of the city, which is self-sufficiency mm-hmm. um, for all the concrete circumstances of life that people within the city live in. It's like within modern city building, there really is no even a dream of self-sufficiency except for that the consumers, like there's sufficient commodities for consumption. But the actual life of the city is increasingly just a sort of prop up of a national project, Mm -hmm. right? So if the nation were to fail, do you know how many of our cities would crumble? I think most all, <laughs> maybe yeah. maybe most. How most of them? Which would be uh, to say this just seems obvious. It's like, of course, well, they're American cities. You lose America, you lose the federal funding, you lose the road system, you lose the gasoline, you lose, lose the military, you lose the dollar. How's a city going to operate? It's going to fall into the ground. It's like, well, yeah, because the things we built aren't quite cities. What a city is is at the very least you have to say it's tending towards its own self sufficiency, even if that's sort of an ideal point that it mm-hmm. doesn't reach. Mm-hmm. Um, but within the sort of I think kind of inverted system of subsidiarity that we have. Um, we don't build self-sufficient cities. We build sort of outposts of a national plan. We build yeah. outposts of a it, global consumerist plan. And the way Aquinas writes about it, the assumption is is there that suf- like bare sufficiency is is kind of a key component of a city. Not necessarily the sufficiency to really flourish because he does talk about the importance of trade. He says trade should be engaged in carefully and a little bit at arm's length, but that trade is important to cities Mm -hmm. because it allows people to exchange goods and ideas and, and gain a good that, that might not otherwise be available from the sufficient nature. Yeah. But the, the assumption is really that, you know, if trade were cut off, yeah. the city would not collapse on right, itself. Right, which is why and he says to make a moderate use of merchants. Right. Because the moment that you have an immoderate use of merchants, it's that the merchants are actually not just providing for existing needs, but creating needs and ultimately creating a kind of dependency so that your city isn't a city anymore. Right. It's a sort of city if you also include within it someplace very far away where it's an instantiation. I mean, it's essentially like a, a global city that just yeah. happens to be dispersed into little pockets. And we know what this is like, right? We know the experience of going to a brand new city, you're very excited. You know, maybe get off the plane, maybe get off the train and you walk in and hey, they have a subway too. This is incredible. You mean and like then, the, the restaurant? Yeah, the subway. Okay. Sorry. <laughs> I'm like, I shouldn't use if subway. they have a subway, Taco Bell. We're, we're deprived of public transit in the U.S. I got very excited. Yeah, where no, are we? Like, no, Whoa. No, we're talking about Chipotle. Subway sandwiches, Chipotle, yes. Yes, so yeah. Starbucks. Got to have a Starbucks. So the Otherwise actual not built environment just looks like slight modifications yeah. on a homogenous culture. And mm-hmm. that's not accidental. It is the reliance on merchants. It's like, because... Okay, we're not going to go down this whole rabbit hole, but because we all rely go on money. Check, go check out "Is Your City Obsessed with Money?" Yes. episode of the Good Money yes. podcast series. Yes, one of the one of the consequences of it is that really, though we say we have one city here and one city there, we in fact have one large city. Like if you actually okay, let's put the map around. Where is the line of self sufficiency? Yes, not where is yeah. the legal border? Let's use Aquinas' definition and not and not the um, government's definition. Well, if you're going to draw a line around the self-sufficiency that included all those markets, you'd probably have to, at some point, that line's going to stretch over the Atlantic Ocean. Mm-hmm. It's going to start to oh, include a good portion of China. You get, you know, <laughs> the city yeah. is is um, well, it's a big one. We'll say that much. Yeah. So Aquinas allows us, I think, to unplug from this and to retain what I think is a very good critique of the wickedness of the modern city without indulging this sort of reaction that negates 
the civic life and, and urban life as such. Yeah. It says, look, the problem is actually that our cities aren't cities enough. Yeah. Um, and if they could be cities, then a lot of the, well, that they should be cities. Yeah. Right, mm-hmm. right. Yeah, it leaves open the hope, too, that they can be redeemed. Mm-hmm. You know, we can we can work, start moving a little bit in that direction. So, and this is no different than the Old Testament narrative that you spoke of. I mean, the right. storehouse cities, for instance, yeah. that... Yeah, uh, Ramses, they're just cities that exist for the sake of serving a larger imperial move. Right, exactly. Yeah. So, you know, already there's a condemnation um, of of these cities as not really being cities. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, in the Bible and the prophets, very often uh, the description of the, of the city is as uh, of, of an insolent or idolatrous city is um, sort of as, as a whore. Okay. <laughs> so I'm, I'm just, this is just what it's in the Bible. Okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, and, um, and, you know, the whore has many lovers and in Isaiah, especially this is like just, you know, weeping for Jerusalem and as basically having no no bounds to her to her lust, and that this is what defines a sort of corrupt and ultimately idolatrous city. That there's just no there was no fidelity, mm-hmm. and I think that in Aquinas you already can see there's this gain that the Christian civilization seems to have made, which is to really clearly understand the city as having a sort of faithfulness to a people mm-hmm. for Absolutely. the sake of their perfection. Mm-hmm. And, and it's interesting. I mean, you see it, especially in the United States, you see a lot of cities that are only really juridically defined. They mm. wouldn't even be recognized. Like you don't recognize it as a city by looking at it. Like you would, you know, New York, you look at New York and it's like, yeah, that's a city. Yeah. Uh, even setting aside the self-sufficiency, self-sufficiency no. and everything. New York city like, rocks. It's obvious. You look at it and it's just yeah. like, that's a city. But you have a lot of cities in the U.S. that are, are lines on a map, but what they really are is is simply juridically defined like bedroom communities, mm. and they don't even have some of them don't even have a grocery store. It's literally just a line on a map, and they they might have a city council building at most just to say, hey, we govern ourselves to the exclusion of everyone else only so that we can use this place to commute to and from it's, an actual city center that actually has other goods. It's really right, fascinating. Right, right. The, the land development work that Nathan does isn't so much utility coordination, but one of my previous engineering jobs did a lot of like transmission line easements, mm-hmm. you know, miles long lines just going across various municipalities and counties. And we, we would have to send like notification letters to these counties saying, hey, we're proposing, you know, our client is proposing to put a transmission line through your project or proper through your city or township. And uh, you had to find like the contact for the city. And it's for especially like transmission some lines. Some of them are really difficult. Some of them are they're terribly difficult to find because it, it like the population is, you know, maybe 10 or 20 people. And um, often if it's unincorporated land, you're having to have a contact of like the nearest city yeah. or nearest township. And so this is just to the point. <clears throat> the these places don't have um, a self-sufficiency or an identity unto themselves. And this is very common. It's very common. And it can happen very obviously when when we reduce everything to money. And I remember I was at a um, sort of a meeting with a consulting firm about Steubenville, and they were basically laying out, you know, it was was humorous because it was like they were coming from somewhere else, and they were sitting us, you know, we're in Steubenville, we live this life. And they're like, okay, so we've been around your town for a week, and so we've got a sense of what the problems are, and here's some proposed solutions. So we've noticed you don't have a lot of jobs. Now, here's the solution. You could become a bedroom community for Pittsburgh. So everyone was like, oh, that's brilliant. And it's like like the, the, the mindset when it's just like what a city is for is, is the creation of money in some, any manner. There's nothing civic. As long as the money is being made, as long as there's technically jobs and we can consume and continue our survival, then you're still a city. So once you've accepted that view, then you're also willing to, um, I kind of wanted to jump out of the window in this particular instance just because <laughs> it's like, well, no, I think I would rather Steubenville just like burn to the ground <laughs> than burn the burg. a sort of like, uh, you know, a place for people to sleep so that the, their love and their life and their work could go be expended elsewhere. And then 
and then we can get tax tax revenues because they're unconscious, like technically within our jurisdiction. <laughs> Anyways, sorry. Just bringing up personal stuff, <laughs> doing it on the pod. <laughs> I think from here we should probably lay out where we're going. Sure. I think we already mentioned go back and listen to the Good Money episode. Is your city obsessed with money? Because mm. I think it goes into a lot of critiques drawing from this same document and, and it's, it's obvious that American cities are obsessed with money and, and you really lay out all the ways in which that actually affects the way we live. Mm -hmm. Um, so we're setting aside the question of money for the most part, we'll be touching on it tangentially where we're going from here is we're going to talk at length about the automobile Oh boy, get ready. Yeah. New polity takes on the car. It is it is impossible to talk about American cities without talking about the automobile. It is just inherent to our history and to our current built environment. And it is, there's no way to divorce ourselves from its impact on our lives, especially as we're talking about cities. So we'll be talking yeah. about that at length. In some ways we have the automobile to thank, um, not for what it's done to our cities, but the fact that in its destructive <laughs> capacity, it's made us think about the cities again. So this whole <laughs> yeah. wave of new urbanism, I think, ultimately comes from the fact that after we really put the highways through the cities, we had to step back and say, like, now what, what is a city? What, yeah. what, are, we what are we doing here? Again? And it, it <laughs> makes possible, like you were talking <laughs> yeah. about, like yeah. Steubenville can only be a, a bedroom community of, of Pittsburgh if you assume Yes, that people can drive back and forth because that's that's they a considerable distance. They destroyed yeah. the Pennsylvania rail station, so yep. there's no way to get there from Student Mill to Pittsburgh besides a car right now. Yeah, so we'll be talking about cars at yeah. length. Yeah, we will be further exploring the relationship between what we're roughly calling the city and the land, and trying to heal that divide, understand how these things are actually unified and they are all part of the city as a civic project. Okay. We'll be talking about planning and the impact that it has had on the history of American cities, but also how it can be used to improve the future. And then we'll be giving what is hopefully some practical advice on how to enter into the civic project where you live, wherever that may be. Mm -hmm. That's wonderful. Well, Nathan, Jacob, I'm so happy to have you here. I think this is going to fill a gap in New Polity's evangelical efforts here. And I appreciate you very much. Thank you for having us. Thank All right. you. Guys, subscribe to New Polity Magazine, and we'll see you next time.